HRI Ethics with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. And welcome to the 158th episode of the Robots Podcast. I am Jana and today we will focus on the question of ethics and human-robot interactions. But first, as always, here are the news with Christine. Thank you, Jana. Until a few weeks ago, Google was retrofitting standard automobiles with its gadgetry. Now Google has announced a cute and tiny fully autonomous car prototype. Its most striking characteristic is that it doesn't have any controls, no steering wheel, accelerator or brake pedals. There's just an on switch and an off switch. The self-driving cars currently go only 40 kilometers per hour and are for street, not highway driving. They have a range of about 160 kilometers powered by an electric motor that is roughly equivalent to the one used by Fiat's 500e. Google executives said the initial prototypes would comply with current California automated driving regulations updated on May 20, 2014, and that Google is hoping to have at least 100 of the cute little cars built and being tested later this year. If the thought of a humanoid robot in your home makes your skin crawl, meet the friendly Pepper. Aldebaran Robotics Pepper was created specifically for SoftBank and the Japanese market and is designed to be engaging and friendly, a companion able to communicate through an intuitive artificial intelligence interface that reads and interprets voice, touch, and emotions. Equipped with an array of audio, visual, and tactile sensors, Pepper is 120 centimeters tall and weighs about 28 kilograms. It has two arms and rolls around on a wheeled base. Its chest bears a 10.1-inch touchscreen that can be used to communicate along with its voice and gestures. Its Naoki operating system has an emotion engine, as well as cloud-based artificial intelligence to help it understand people and respond to them. Pepper can already be seen greeting customers in two SoftBank stores in Japan and will be available for purchase beginning February 2015 at a price of €1,410 or $1,925. For more information on self-driving cars and humanoid robots, visit robohub.org. The interactions of humans and robots are a fascinating field that has sparked many debates among ethicists with questions such as should robot designers and practitioners consider dignity, respect and privacy? Or can robot design be sexist or racist? Laura Rieck is Assistant Professor of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Notre Dame, where she directs the Robotics Health and Communication Lab. Her research interests are in human-robot interaction, social signal processing and health informatics. Reek's work explores how to build machines that are socially agile, able to sense, respond and adapt to human behaviour. Our interviewer A. Jung spoke to her about the human-robot code of ethics she developed with Dr. Don Howard 
and about what this code might mean for robot practitioners. Is there a benefit to making robots that look human-like? How do people feel about a robot when it says things in a certain way? Can we design a robot that moves in ways that make people feel safe? These are some of the many questions related to the study of human-robot interaction. Human-robot interaction, often referred to as HRI for short, is a fascinating and interdisciplinary field of study that looks at the interaction between humans and robots. Earlier in April of this year, Dr. Laurel Rick and Don Howard of the University of Notre Dame presented their work on a code of ethics for the HRI profession. Joining us today to talk about this work is Dr. Laurel Rick. She is Claire Booth Luce, Assistant Professor of Computer Science and Engineering and the Director of the Robotics, Health and Communication Lab at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome to Robots Podcast. Thank you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your research interest and your role in the HRI community? Sure. Uh, generally, my work focuses on building socially agile robots that are able to sense and act appropriately with people in human social environments. And I also work in healthcare, and I use robotics technology to help to improve healthcare delivery and safety. Oh, very interesting. In the work that you presented in April at the We Robot Conference, you presented a code of ethics for HRI. Can you tell us what it is that you actually proposed and how that kind of relates to your role in HRI? Sure. Um, I think one of the goals of HRI is to design robots capable of robustly dealing with people approximately in human social environments. And in addition to creating a number of technical challenges, this also creates social, ethical, and legal challenges. And over the past decade that I've been working in this field, I've noticed a number of really unique ethical challenges cropping up. So the first story that I heard in the space was about Paro. And um, Paro is a robotic seal that was developed in Japan. And it's a pet-like robot that's used as a companion in elder homes and for therapy. And it was introduced in Denmark on a rotational schedule. So there was one client who had lost her ability to speak Danish. And as soon as she started working with Paro, she regained her ability to speak. And this was really hailed as a therapeutic breakthrough. However, once the rotational period had ended, they had to take the robot away from her, and she once again lost her speaking abilities. And when I first heard about this, uh, probably back in 2004 or 2005, it really seemed very problematic to me from an ethical standpoint. And I began hearing similar stories to this from other individuals who work with vulnerable populations. So people that work with children with autism, patients with chronic health conditions, uh, people from low-income populations, and so on. And you know, this question is, what happens when we take the robot away, and what does that effect have on people? And in my own research, there were other ethical issues that also began cropping up. So, for example, in HR research, we often use a technique called Wizard of Oz, or WAS. And here, what happens is a wizard is remotely operating a robot. It's controlling their movement, language understanding, speech. And this is all happening sort of from behind a curtain. So the person that's interacting with the robot isn't seeing the wizard. Um, and really, this technique was developed in the 1980s in the natural language processing community to sort of test out aspects of a system that were going to be developed in the future. And WASP was designed not only to simulate future perfection, but also to simulate error. And this really helped to ground the engineering because you were simulating realistic errors and realistic mistakes that might happen. But in robotics and particularly in social HRI, this technique began being used for human language understanding, speaking, generating appropriate nonverbal behaviors in conversations, uh, and so on. So, so what, what it turned out was that we were really very rarely, as researchers, simulating error. Um, instead, what was happening is we were simulating perfection. 
And really, this raised a number of methodological questions. But I think more importantly, there's this sort of big question is, are people interacting with a robot when they run these studies? Or are they interacting with a human surrogate that's communicating through a robot? And there's sort of these ethical questions. Are we creating a Turing deception where people aren't sure if they're interacting with a robot or a person? And are these deceptions ethically okay? So I guess these sort of experiences really kicked off my interest in ethics for HRI. And Don Howard and I had been working together in other contexts. Don's an ethicist um, and a philosopher here at Notre Dame. And uh, I teach her a course, actually, I teach an autonomous mobile robots course in the computer science department, and he teaches a robot ethics course in the philosophy department. And we often share students and we guest lecture for one of their classes and so on. And this seems like it would be a really great project to collaborate on, given Don's interest in professional ethics and uh, philosophy of science. And so we're really happy to be able to present this work at We Robot last week. This method called Wizard of Oz that you just talked about, um, how frequently is it used? Is, is it a popular method of research? So Wizard of Oz is a very commonly used technique in HRI. Uh, I did a study in 2011 where I searched through all of the major conferences and looked for terms of how often Wizard of Oz was used. And between 2003 and 2011, there were about 100, at least 177 different papers that were using WAS, but I think there's a lot of other people that call it other things, uh, but are effectively using this technique. It's very commonly used. Um, isn't Wizard of Oz just used for research study, like experiment purposes, or do they also extend outside of lab context as well? So... Wizard of Oz is often used in terms of remote operation, and it can often sometimes be used for remote social interaction. So sometimes this is okay. For example, if we take uh, a telepresence robot, in that case, the remote user is being represented in the face of the telepresence robot, and it's all sort of clear to the person on the other end. But there might be cases where one could envision a situation where a robot is being teleoperated and there's no obvious notion that this robot is being teleoperated or who is doing this teleoperation. I think that could potentially be problematic. For example, if we have a person who has uh, cognitive impairment uh, or someone who's very small who might not recognize the fact that this robot is being controlled by someone else in another place and not knowing who that person is, uh, that could create some ethical challenges. So when you're discussing the code of ethics and what inspired you to draft this code of ethics, you mentioned the example of Paro and how its relationship with the user kind of had to end because it was the end of the research. Is that where the scope of the code of ethics lies? Are you targeting the practitioners of HRI in particular in the research domain or what's the scope of the code of ethics? We're looking at pretty much everybody across the spectrum that work in human robot design. So we have folks that are doing research. We have people working in industry that are building robots, that are marketing robots, that are selling robots. We have people in academia. We have people in healthcare contexts. There's a whole lot of different stakeholders involved in designing and deploying and marketing robots uh, that are intended to be used with people. And so our code of ethics is really intended for anyone who's, we would call a practitioner, which is somebody who is going to be involved in this process. So the scope of the code is really um, is really to ensure people are who are involved in any aspect of, the, I would say, the human robot pipeline are aware of and concerned about some of these issues. So is the goal of the code of ethics to ensure that everyone makes the ethical decisions when it comes to HRI? 
I think it's important for HRI practitioners to be cognizant of the ethical challenges that may come up during interaction. Um, and I think that a lot of times, especially those of us from a technical perspective are often very focused very much on the technology um, or maybe focused on a particular aspect of interaction, but there's sort of a larger space of issues that we should be concerned about and aware of. I guess going into more specifics about the code of ethics, what are the general principles that are covered in the code? So the code of ethics has four primary dimensions. And those are human dignity considerations, design considerations, legal considerations, and social considerations. So human dignity considerations include things like respecting a human's right to privacy and being aware of human frailty, including both physical and psychological frailty. Social considerations include designing robots to include very clear opt-out mechanisms or kill switches should anyone want to immediately cease interacting with a robot. And also ensuring trustworthy system design principles are upheld at all times. So from basically from the platform all the way to control, all the way to interaction to ensure that a person's privacy is maintained and things like that. Legal considerations include that all laws are upheld and respected, including those of HIPAA, the FDA, the FTC, and furthermore that decision paths that a robot takes are as reconstructable as possible. And finally, for social considerations, this includes things like being judicious and careful in how we use Wizard of Oz and being aware of the fact that humans anthropomorphize just about everything, especially robots. Uh, so to be kind of cognizant and aware of that in design. In presenting the code of ethics, you kind of mentioned that the designers should probably avoid implementing racist, sexist, and ableist morphologies and behaviors in, in the design. Are there already examples of designs that demonstrate such things? So Jennifer Robertson and Claudia Jod have done a lot of work on how we gender robots. And this is, can be everything from their morphologies and behaviors uh, all the way to the gender pronouns that we use to describe robots. And I think their work suggests as robots that we could do a better job of being a little bit more egalitarian in our designs. When we build robots, even mechanistic ones, it's always sort of interesting. It's also really sort of interesting to think about why we select the morphologies that we do. So why are so many of the robots that we build gray and boxy? And I think it's really interesting to think a little bit about how 1950s science fiction films are still very much driving industrial robot design. So in the code of ethics, we're not, and I think this is really important to mention, we're not saying thou shall not ever do this or that. Um, there are a few of those thou shall not, such as invading people's privacy and things like that, or respecting people's privacy and things like that. But in general, in terms of design, we, we usually state something along the lines of um, as to the extent necessary to for reasonable design objectives, right? So if, you're, if your design objective is intentionally to do X, that's certainly something that's, that's okay, but it's important to sort of be cognizant and aware of some of the implications of how your robot is being designed. Can you give us a, an example of how emotional needs of people can be respected through HRI design decisions? The two big ones are privacy and attachment. As roboticists, if we're solely technology-focused, we just think, is this camera correctly tracking objects? But if we're ethically focused, we also think, where is the data being stored? How long will it persist? Who has access to it? And how can I best ensure privacy of people who will interact with this robot? And I think another important example of this is attachment. So much research in our field has shown that people anthropomorphize and become very attached to robots. This is not to say we should never engender this, but we should certainly be aware that this is going to happen. 
As robot designers, we might think a bit like car repair shops. When you bring your car in to be repaired, many car repair shops will loan you a replacement car to drive for the day as your car is being worked on, often with the same make and model to what you currently own. And as a business, they recognize customers are attached to their cars, and they understand people may feel distressed to be without transportation or familiar transportation. It's really the same thing for robots. If you're running a study with a vulnerable population, children with autism, people with cognitive disabilities, what will the effects be not only during the study, but after it? What's your transition plan? How will you wean people off their attachment to their therapeutic robot? These are all things that are important for us to be thinking about. What I found really fascinating about the code is that, you know, uh, there are all these general principles and I would love to follow them as an HRI researcher myself. But at the same time, the, the engineer in me is saying, you know, give me the specifics. How, how can I ensure that someone's privacy is respected or, you know, I can actually uh, ensure that human dignity uh, principle is followed? Are there any specifics to that or is more of a um, sign on to the code of ethics and try your best you can? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, when one is developing professional ethics, they're they're more gen they're more intended to be guidance and to help to guide the HRI researcher, the engineer, toward designing robots that meet up or uphold ethical guidelines. We do have a few very specific considerations in robot design that I think an engineer could follow, such as ensuring trustworthy system design principles. Every point to point, at every point in the process different processes should be sandboxed, everything should be encrypted, how long, if I create, if I'm going to be storing video data to do processing for my manipulator, how long am I keeping that data for? Where is that data being stored? Those kinds of things, is that data being encrypted? You know, those kinds of questions, I think as engineers, we should be asking ourselves those questions as we build robots to ensure that we're thinking about this at all points. We don't think about security or privacy after we've built the robot and we're about to put it out into the world, it should be there from the onset. And I think also having others involved in the design process from the beginning can help with that. So having people who work in some of these other areas being a part of the conversation. So the We Robot community is fantastic because it brings together so many different researchers from very different fields, you know, law and policy and ethics and philosophy, as well as, as technical folks. And I think having everyone coming to the table at the beginning of a design project can be very beneficial toward ensuring that ethical guidelines can be maintained. The, the Code of Ethics also calls for design, designers to be careful about human attachment and anthropomorphism. There are already projects out there that may be kind of taking advantage of this tendency. But then again, there could be benefits of people anthropomorphizing robots or making robots that are human-like. And there could be maybe not so much of a benefit. But between those, is there a line that we should be drawing? Where, where should designers draw the line between what is a legitimate and illegitimate use of anthropomorphism in design features? I don't think there's a right or wrong answer or illegitimate or legitimate answer because it's really going to depend a lot on the context of use and the culture that the robot's being used in uh, and so on. And the tasks that the robot needs to do as well is going to by necessity engender different types of capabilities. So I think that it's important to note we're not trying to be proscriptive and say you must do this or you must not do this, but more that I think designers should be cognizant and aware of this. People anthropomorphize everything. It could be the most, you know, this robot that you would never imagine uh, people would find attachment to. But I think Julie Carpenter's work on 
Pakbat, for example, and how soldiers would hold funerals for Pakbat. And Pakbat has no anthropomorphic features whatsoever, and yet people love this robot. People get very attached to this robot. Um, Jody Forlizzi's work on Roomba, right? People really love their Roombas. They dress them up, they name them, they, you know, they have, it's part of their family, it's part of their, their culture. So I think something that even if you don't make something human-like at all, people are going to form attachments to it. And I think just being aware of that and cognizant of that is important. Mm-hmm. And Peckbot that you, you're speaking of is a military robot that doesn't look anything like humans, right? Is that right? Right, right. Peckbot is very mechanical looking. There's no human-like elements to it, but people, and similarly, the rover, the various Mars rovers and such, people also form attachments to uh, people follow the Mars rovers on Twitter, right? It's uh, People love these robots. They, they really uh, appreciate and enjoy these robots and they don't look human-like at all. So I don't think it necessarily has to look human-like in order to, and I think that the research supports, it doesn't have to look human-like to support these kinds of attachments. And I think that designers need to be cognizant of that. So that kind of covers the appearance aspect of it, but there's also the level of autonomy that a robot has, right? It could be, I guess, completely um, teleoperated or very, very autonomous. In the paper, you also mentioned something about the relationship between the level of autonomy and a robot's effectiveness. And I, I guess that could also have a relationship with anthropomorphism as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that relationship between autonomy and effectiveness? Sure. Uh, this is work that was done by Mike Goodrich, Dan Olson, Jacob Crendel, and other colleagues about 13 years ago. And the idea is that as the number of tasks a robot has to do increases in complexity, it becomes less effective the more it is neglected by humans. So trying to ensure safety for multitasking robots is challenging. You know, a vacuum cleaning robot the size of a Frisbee isn't really likely to cause damage if it's neglected, but the hedge trimmer robot definitely could. So we have to think really carefully about how we design autonomy and systems and how humans are going to be involved in the control process. So is it fair to say that more autonomy isn't necessarily the better design of a robot? Again, I think it's going to depend a lot on the context of use and the task that the robot's going to need to be able to do and the robot's capabilities and who the end users might be. I think that we need to think carefully about how we use autonomy as well as how we use teleoperation. I think that we just need to think about all of these aspects as we design robots. So have you had the chance to show this code of ethics to HRI practitioners or uh, people relevant to this to get some feedback? Or have you been able to get positive or negative feedback on this? So we've received a really positive response from the community. One thing that Don and I decided to do at WeRobot was actually to crowdsource ethics. So we opened it up to the floor and we got a lot of great feedback both during our presentation and after, and also over email, actually, we've gotten a lot of really positive comments from the community. And I think having the community being involved is really important because this is not a be-all and end-all. This is a, we, we view this sort of as a live document, as something that we want to continue to to improve upon and expand upon. And actually, we've been talking uh, to several folks in the community about putting together a workshop, possibly at uh, one of the upcoming robotic conferences on this code of ethics on other codes of ethics to sort of think about getting to a place where we can really develop something that can be useful to the community. I think the Open Robots Ethics Initiative is a fantastic opportunity as well to help to get the community involved in understanding and thinking about how we can think about ethical problems in robotics. 
So we're just about to uh, wrap up here, but I understand that you have a lot of different exciting projects lined up or working on. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about your work? Sure, thanks. Uh, the vision of my research group is to build machines that are capable of robustly sensing and responding to the human social world. And we explore how to automatically recognize human social signals as well as how to synthesize them on machines. We're also exploring modeling underlying, the underlying context surrounding these spaces to better enable us to be successful at understanding humans in the world. We have several projects in this space, including modeling human-robot joint action, designing adaptable social robots, and building expressive humanoid robots that can realistically express patient pathologies to better train clinicians to recognize conditions in patients. Yeah, do you have any like specific examples uh, of a project of you know adaptable adaptable uh, systems or um, how, what kind of social signals are being processed and stuff like that? Sure. The vision of my research group is to build machines that are capable of robustly sensing and responding to the human social world. We work on three major areas in this space. The first is how to understand people or social sensing. The other is how to communicate with people or social synthesis. And finally, how to ground these sensing and synthesis problems by modeling social context. So in social sensing, we have several projects, one of which is to computationally model synchronous behavior or joint action between people and robots. As robots and humans need to work together safely and effectively, it's important that we can accurately model human activities and respond appropriately and naturally. In social synthesis, we have several projects, one of which is that we're designing new types of expressive patient simulators. We have modeled several different patient pathologies, stroke, neurological impairments, and pain, and we are able to synthesize these on a very realistic human-looking robot i.e. a patient simulator uh, that we're building. And we're using these robots to train clinicians how to be safer when they interact with patients and also so they learn how not to miss things. And finally, in social context, we are building models of human social environments to better inform robots' behavior. Humans adapt very easily to social contexts. We observe the world around us, what people are doing, and we can easily change our behavior depending on what we see and what we observe. What we're doing is we're building computational models to enable robots to do the same thing. They sound like really amazing research projects. <laughs> um, we'll you. have to actually interview you later on to actually find out more about them. But yeah. thank you so much for taking the time to take my call and for the Robots Podcast. And look forward to um, hearing more about your work in the future. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. And that's the end of today's episode. As always, if we've sparked your interest and you would like to contribute to the ethics debate, just visit our website at robotspodcast.com, where you'll find additional information and space for comments. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. HRI Ethics with... Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.